What I like to do is actually ask patients to really step back and first figure out what is the amount of sleep you need not to exist but to thrive. What's the amount of sleep that you really need to feel energized, excited, enthused about your life, your family, your friends, etc.? What's that amount of sleep? I think the quality of life part is, is absolutely critical to this. I'm Jocelyn K. Gly, and this is Hurry Slowly, a podcast about pacing yourself, where I explore how you can be more productive, creative, and resilient through the simple act of slowing down. If you're anything like me, you probably have a lot of stuff that you want to accomplish in this life. There's the small stuff, like what's on your to-do list for today. For me, write the intro to this podcast, for example. There's the medium stuff, like a big new project you want to get out the door. For me, this is writing my next book. And then the big stuff, the glimmers just beyond the horizon. You're not doing it now, but you're planning to. And it's going to be great. So great that maybe you can finally set all of these to-dos aside and take a break. For me, this is doing something with the screenplays I've been writing for a good 15 years now. And that's just the work. There's also your commitments to friends, family, and fitness, to learning and reading and keeping up with cultural trends. And of course, your Netflix queue. Let's not forget that. Because we even have to-do lists for TV now. Of course, if we want to make room for all the stuff we want to do, something's gotta give. And for many of us, that thing is sleep. That ultimate state of undoing where you just lay there doing nothing and whiling away a full third of your life. Is that really necessary? That's what this episode digs into with the help of Sigrid Vesey, a scientist at the University of Pennsylvania's Center for Sleep and Circadian Neurobiology, where she researches what causes sleep disorders and regularly sees patients who just can't seem to get enough shut-eye. In a conversation that was, for me, truly eye-opening, Sigrid explains how getting enough sleep is crucial to every aspect of our physical, mental, and even creative well-being. And why we so easily overlook the major drop-off in performance that results from sleep loss. We also talk about lots of practical ways to recalibrate and recover from insomnia, chronic sleep loss, and just your garden variety sleep problems like, why can't I stop waking up in the middle of the night with anxiety about work? Well, that was kind of a long intro, and... You may be starting to drift off because you didn't get enough sleep last night. So let's get started. So how prevalent would you say chronic sleep loss is? Chronic sleep loss gets defined as getting less than seven hours a night. Um, And that's still debatable because... I personally need nine hours, and if I'm getting eight hours, I'll feel, <laughs> I'll feel exhausted. So there, there certainly is a spectrum for what people truly need, but the, the Center for Disease uh, Control has, uh, has put out a definition of this less than seven hours. And for that definition, about a third of people fall into that realm of, of not getting the adequate amount of sleep. And partly that uh, has to do with not only night shift workers, but a substantial number of people are working two jobs. Substantial numbers of people have enormously long commute times. It might be an hour and a half, for instance, on each direction. And then the other part is that another large number of people have these early morning jobs. And the early morning jobs are also just by default, you're up early, but you feel like you can't go to bed before you watch a specific show at 10 o'clock. And it sort of forces, squeezes the sleep time closer to that six hours. So it's really pretty common that people have 
short sleep. Mm-hmm. And in terms of the chronic, how long a duration is that? So getting less than seven hours for how long would that be? Yeah, we don't really we don't really know what would be significant, and it's quite interesting. So um, it is possible that only a short spurt of of young adult life at less than seven hours of sleep is significant enough to cause brain injury or lasting changes. So we can't really um, say. We certainly have seen through uh, studies um, in animal models of, of shift work and also in sleep disorders, we can see that the longer you practice this, the the more pronounced the deficits are. But surprisingly, we think that the deficits might be more important in young adults and young children than in older people. And part of that is because the brain is so much more medically active. And uh, and so active wakefulness in a four-year-old or even a 20-year-old is a much bigger metabolic burden on the brain than potentially active wakefulness in an 80-year-old brain. Because we're a little bit more on automatic. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) So what do you think for people, so probably most of the people listening to this podcast, you know, are going to fall somewhere not in the, um, you know, elderly category and probably not in the adolescent category, but somewhere in the middle. What do you think are the primary behaviors that are contributing to sleep loss for, say, that one third of people beyond things like shift work? Are there things like, you know, blue light or other technological factors that you're seeing trends with? Oh, there, are, there are huge um, uh, issues with blue, the blue light in the nighttime, especially for adolescents, an enormous factor of having the, the cell phones on in the nighttime and, and high school uh, kids um, texting each other at 2 and 3 in the morning. And that's certainly something that wasn't happening when I, when I was a kid. Um, but I also think that we are imposing on ourselves um, greater demands for our, for our time. And we're all supposed to be highly active people. And we're, instead of simply working an eight-hour day, we're coming home and cooking in an elaborate meal. We're going to the gym. We're going to a yoga class. We're going to a reading group. Um, and we're doing uh, dinner, et cetera. So we've added more activities into into our days. And that also pushes on on uh, the sleep time as well. But, yeah, we, we live with uh, uh, devices in front of our face um, emitting blue, blue light um, far beyond what we what we should have when the sun goes down. And so is that, you know, you read things like you should maybe not look at your device one to two hours before you're going to bed. Is that kind of, what's the type of rule of thumb that you should be using for that? I think the, 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 where, what I like to do is actually um, ask patients to really step back and first figure out what is the amount of sleep you need not to exist but to thrive. And so that means that you're not just able to walk down the street as a zombie, hey, Bob, how's it going, and, and get your work done. But what's the amount of sleep that you really need to to feel energized, excited, enthused about your life, your family, your friends, et cetera? What's that amount of sleep? Um, and and everyone can get that in a different way. So it may be that someone really has to. So the first thing to do is really take this, take a, a sleep vacation, <laughs> which is really like a, a week period, and really see how much sleep you get, uh, can get possibly, and just read great books, hang out, 
could be a week at the beach or whatever, but something that's a very relaxing vacation, have that as a, a basis. At the end of that week, how do you feel? Do you feel dramatically uh, better? Do you feel, is your mood better? Are you more excited about things? Are you able to engage with your family members? Do you have less of a short temper, et cetera? Use that as your gauge of, well, this is what my life is like with plenty of sleep. That's, I think the quality of life part is, is absolutely um, critical to this. Once you're there, then you should really make notes and make a log of what you're able to do, what you think that has done for you, and then figure out what can you add into your schedule. Maybe maybe you're going to decide not to have more than uh, one glass of wine with dinner and, and, and make sure and look at how that's affecting sleep. Maybe you're going to look at the blue light devices, et cetera, um, in bed. Do everything for sort of one week and figure out what really is making a difference, what's negatively impacting you. Because you could go through this a litany of 20 things to do, and it might take all the fun out of your life. <laughs> and the goal is really to enhance the quality of your life. Um, but I, I have to say that as a uh, physician and uh, working in the hospital and being on call and having young children at, at home at the time, I had no idea how valuable, how much uh, sleep loss was impacting on my life. It's very much like being a uh, poorly controlled diabetic or poorly controlled asthmatic that you kind of, it becomes your new norm and you don't really understand that, that you really could feel better. Then taking a wonderful vacation, I, I did this and really thought, I'm, I'm able to come back and write so much uh, more quickly, so much more, I'm thinking more efficiently, I'm getting so much more done, and I can actually get all of that 10 hours of work that I thought I needed to get done now in six hours and have that other time asleep, it's a, it's a much better way to exist. Mm -hmm. So um, I think everybody sort of has to figure out what works best for them. But certainly the blue light in the nighttime, um, watching things like the evening news and having horrific events or stressful events just before you're going to sleep, Similarly, reading reading stressful books, uh, alcohol in the nighttime, high caloric intake right before bed, um, exercising right before you go to bed. Those are all things that are going to promote wakefulness and disturb sleep. And therefore, you have to figure out which of those things would be best to eliminate for you. When I was reading, I think, an interview that you had done elsewhere where you were saying that when you experience chronic sleep loss, as you were sort of just starting to touch on, your perception of how much sleep you need becomes altered so that you don't even really understand how much sleep that you need, in a sense. That, yeah, that's absolutely right. And very importantly, you cannot perceive your sleepiness. So there have been labs done with young adult humans in the lab, and, and they're kept, uh, they're only allowed to sleep four hours a night, and they're looking at their different uh, neurobehavioral tests. Uh, but one of the tests is a subjective test. It's how do you feel? And on the very first night, the subjects will say, oh, I feel horrible. I feel really sleepy. And by the third night, even though their performances have really fallen down, every day of shorter sleep adds to their performance decrement. While the performance is getting worse and worse and worse, they're actually feeling closer to their norm. And, and by day three and day four and day five, they're saying, I feel pretty much back to normal. I'm, I'm, I guess I've gotten used to it. So coming back to this idea of a sleep vacation, essentially mm -hmm. to sort of reset your 
your clock, right? right? And right, kind of your right. awareness. Would the idea be to just sort of sleep as much as you possibly could or to sleep more, you know, seven hours, eight hours or whatever you yeah, it's a good it's a good amount. question because um, there are times when you are better poised to sleep or your body is more ready to sleep and that's that's falling in line with your circadian rhythm and when you have built up a drive for sleep because you've been awake for a while. So it still should be that you're trying to sleep in the nighttime, but extending that sleep by uh, an hour or two or what you can. Sleeping later in the morning is perfectly fine to do. Um, if that's how the vacation is, is involves later nights, and then, then definitely have later mornings. For the first couple of nights, people, uh, for first couple of days, rather, people may wake up from that longer sleep pattern and uh, may actually feel hungover or feel a little bit sick from either taking a nap or from sleeping too long. And what that is, is that's actually sleep inertia. And it's sort of a, a your body still needs that sleep, um, but it just hasn't fully, you're not fully awake. And it leaves you sort of in this in this fog, but it also makes people nauseous sometimes. And the, the, best, the best cure for that is <laughs> shower, exercise, get some caffeine once, once you're up, and that will break that sleep inertia, um, but but continue to um, push for getting that that extra hour or two of sleep to really see how your body functions with it. Okay, that's interesting because that I find that often happens to me where I get a good night's sleep, but I don't feel you know I wake then you wake up kind of groggy. So that's right. kind of what sleep right. inertia yeah. is, just exactly sort of yeah. catching up. Yeah. Yeah, and it just takes a while to, to break out of it. Some people can have that for an afternoon nap, um, and if the afternoon nap is longer than two hours, they can wake up and they feel like they never fully wake up. They're sort of like in a zombie land for the rest of the afternoon. And in that case, you know, you can do it two different ways. You can, um, if you're horribly sleep-deprived, you can actually have a little bit of like a third of a cup of coffee before you go, before you take a nap, you'll still be able to fall asleep, but that breaks the sleep inertia when you wake up. Up. And the other way is just to have a shorter nap so that you, the nap is closer to 30 minutes to an hour rather than the two hours that really um, puts you into that sleep inertia. So how important is it to fall asleep at a regular time and wake up at a regular time? Because some of the things that I've read seem to indicate that altering that by half an hour, an hour, you know, things that seem minor when you're doing them actually have kind of a large impact. Is that true? They can. You know, the the, the more that you can have a, uh, a regular circadian rhythm, the, the better your whole body runs. So it's, it's absolutely helpful for sleep, but it's really important for your whole body. You're, the main reason that, our, that we have circadian rhythms or, the, or that that's a survival advantage that has been passed on for every animal species we know of and plant species as well is really that um, being able to predict what's happening in the environment allows your your cells to get ready for the event. Oh, she's, you know, she's getting up soon. She's going to be eating that bowl of yogurt shortly. You know, we're ready for that. The more regular your life is, the, the easier it is for your body to sort of plan ahead and prompt that. And the same, the same goes for sleep. You'll get far better quality sleep, a bigger bang for your buck, if you will, if it's your usual sleep time. I don't think we have the research, however, to say that if, you know, three nights a week you're going to sleep 30 minutes earlier or 30 minutes later, that that is substantially affecting the quality of your sleep. You know, we haven't really done long enough 
studies to really see, does that really change the, the sleep quality in you? Mm-hmm. And so again, I'd say, you know, get that reference check of where your optimal sleep is and use it as, as a, a benchmark. And you may need to do that every summer <laughs> to sort of check in again and find out, okay, this is my good sleep. And then go from that point to be able to come up with, okay, this is okay for me to stay up an extra half an hour, but boy, it really bothers my friend. It's sort of a thing. Yeah. It's time for a short break now, after which Sigrid and I get into how sleep is the time when your body figuratively takes out the trash and what you can do if you have a habit of waking up in the middle of the night with anxiety. This is a PSA about email anxiety. Did you know that if you take all the data and crunch all the numbers, it's possible that over the course of your entire professional career, you could spend upwards of 29,000 hours on email? That's 3.3 years of your life spent on email. Now, before you decide to throw your laptop out the window, drop off the grid, and move to the woods, the good news is I have a solution. I recently published a book called Unsubscribe, which is all about how to get over email overload, avoid mindless distractions, and spend more time on meaningful work. It also has a bunch of handy cheat sheets for writing all different types of email messages, everything from pitching your ideas to negotiating better fees to delivering criticism. So if you'd like to give yourself the gift of sanity this holiday season, it's worth checking out. It's also a great passive-aggressive gift for coworkers, bosses, or other collaborators who just don't seem to understand email etiquette. You can get all the deets on my personal website at jkglei.com slash unsubscribe. That's jkglei.com slash unsubscribe. So let's go a little more deeply into these negative impacts of chronic sleep loss. What's happening to our bodies, to our minds that, you know, maybe very slowly in a way that people are not so conscious of? Yeah, that, and that's a great question. So um, when we first started looking at sleep, and, and this wasn't, wasn't my, myself, but this is probably back maybe 50 to 60 years ago, what was recognized was that the brain was, a, was incredibly slow. There are big, slow waves that happen in sleep. And the presumption really was that the brain was really just truly resting, that it was just, it was just a perfectly quiescent period. And what we've only come to realize recently is that the brain is, is pretty far from resting during sleep, that it is building the good synapses. So, uh, I think one, one way to think about it is, is thinking about, um, you're writing a piece or, or working on a project and there's certain things you really want to remember that would be key parts to put into a presentation. Those synapses when you go to sleep are synapses that are going to be, um, actually built up and strengthened. Where you parked your car two nights ago is a synapse that you can get rid of. It doesn't really matter anymore. And so the brain is both actively cleaning up synapses and it's probably reinforcing the important ones. And not getting sleep means you're not doing your housekeeping and literally aren't aren't getting where you need to go. Now, then the other part about the brain that's unique is that 
all cells are making all sorts of byproducts. We're making a lot of reactive oxygen species. We break down the mitochondria, the energy um, of little factories. And all of those things are highly toxic, and they have to get out of the, the brain because, again, you have this limited number of neurons that are have a limited lifespan, and they're not going to be replaced. And so you have to be able to get that out. And we also believe, then, that, that sleep is a time that neurons are packaging up those toxic products. And, and then the other part is that the brain is actually doing growing, so the growth hormones are up during sleep. And so the brain is growing. So we now know that sleep is a, an incredibly active process. The overall metabolic rate might be lower because the neurons are not firing in, in desynchronized patterns as much, but the, the brain is really serving these amazing um, processes. And it doesn't get a second chance. So if you skip sleep and you didn't take out that toxic garbage last night, it's going to injure the cell. So that's the role that we think of sleep. And then there also are the, the aspects that are not really just related to the brain, but also related to the body. And um, sleep is incredibly critical for surges of growth hormones. So this would be, of course, it's very relevant for children. If children are not getting enough sleep, they literally will fall off their growth curve. They'll start flattening out the growth curve pattern as they're uh, growing or not growing. But we also see that in uh, adults, then the growth hormones play a big role in tissue repair, repair of, of heart muscles, repair of muscles, repair of the intestinal tract. And that also can be compromised then um, with sleep loss. So you use the metaphor of sleep kind of being a form of taking out the trash, right, both mm -hmm. mentally as well as physically. Right, right. And I'm really curious to go into, I think, more specifically, the mental impact of that. How do you see that playing out? Um, a lot of my audience, people who are maybe working in knowledge worker types of jobs, creative jobs, do you see any specific impact um, you know, in your research or just your personal experience in terms of the impact on creativity? It's a really good question because I think that the, um, the parts of the brain that have the the biggest metabolic effects of sleep loss are really the the frontal cortices that would sort of be your executive function, and that's um, planning, integrating material, putting it together, problem solving, coming up with unique uh, system. So it's not the stuff, uh, w when you're sleep deprived, you can still memorize a poem that you learned in the third grade. Um, you can, you of course know your address, you can find, you can find a lot of things. There, a lot of that didactic memory is, is perfectly intact. But what you can't do is you can't troubleshoot, problem solve. And yes, I think create, creativity would be in that same, that same area. You're sort of almost moving into this autonomic zone. Like, let me just, grab my coffee, grab my breakfast, get out the door, answer my emails, finish my day, come home, get dinner, and you're in this autonomic mode. Yeah, and I, I experience that so much personally where I feel like if I'm sleep deprived, you know, I can do rote work, but any type of particularly challenging problem solving right. or creative work is just mm -hmm. really beyond me at that Right. At that point. Yeah, and one of the things that we have found that's that's interesting is that in in the human studies, um, so they've done PET scan imaging of the brain, and the and the whole forebrain looks like it's ice cold. It's just just like it's still asleep while you're awake, and that's how it looks after this chronic short sleep of getting Monday through Friday getting. Um, 
four hours a night of sleep or five hours and even six hours, there's a substantial cold forebrain. And what we, what we haven't done as researchers is we haven't shown the real recovery of that. And uh, we don't know when that brain is going to look like it has its normal metabolic status back. Is it one day, two days, or three days? We do know that that your attention time, uh, rather your reaction time and the number of lapses you have to a very mundane vigilance task is dramatically impaired across sleep loss. And if you take three nights of nine hours time in bed, getting about eight and a half hours of sleep, that's insufficient to fix it. So we know that uh, weekend recovery sleep, you feel better, you feel perfect. Um, but weekend recovery sleep is not enough to make up for for that. And I would suspect that if the vigilance is down, that probably some of these other um, higher cognitive functions, uh, the, uh, the traits in humans that are the things that would be most susceptible to uh, and would take the longest to recover. Well, it's interesting, right? You were kind of talking about being the sort of zombie mode, you know, when you're mm-hmm. when you're experiencing chronic sleep loss and you know, you're maybe only able to do certain rote tasks and then we now live in this world that is um sort of primed to give us more and more rote tasks to do, right? Yes. Email or yeah. checking your mm-hmm. social media mm-hmm. feeds or right there's mm-hmm. a sort of seemingly infinite amount of fodder for these kind of right. things you could do where you feel occupied but are maybe right. not really challenging. Yeah. It's kind of interesting to me, I guess, to think about how long and then kind of wrap in that idea of you don't really perceive the loss of quality in your work when you experience chronic sleep loss. You can kind of just sort of proceed yeah. in this almost yeah. zombie work mm-hmm. mode for a very long and it, time. And again, very frequently that happens really slowly over time. And you'll just think, wow, I feel like I must be getting older because I'm not able to work as efficiently. You know, there may be some truth to that, but probably there's a big chunk that you really, if you get that sleep, you can A, be more efficient, B, be more creative, um, C, be more of a a think outside the box person uh, to problem solve. And do you think there's any other ways aside from sort of taking an extended sleep vacation to trigger an awareness of, you know, when you're sort of performing at that subpar level or when you've maybe sort of slipped into a zombie mode? The things that you would you would look for would be, are you losing train of thought? Are you getting halfway through a sentence? What am I doing? Are you are you being less attentive than you normally are? Are you able to stay in a task where you're writing something without ha- bouncing out to check your emails, et cetera? Can you really stay on task, stay with one area and focus on that and uh, conclude that before you move on to the other tasks? That would be something to look at. And I think that business of taking the sleep vacation or just increasing your sleep time, if you have, if you're never going to, if you're not going to have a vacation for the next uh, three or four months, it may serve the purpose to just, you know, I love that show, but let me just um, record it and get to sleep um, 30 minutes, 45 minutes earlier, or let me see what else I can put off to the weekend and so that I'm actually able to get that extra bit of sleep in and yeah. see where you are. It should be that you can actually feel like you're thriving and not just existing. So I'm someone who regularly wakes up at probably 4 a.m. exactly every single night. Is that... I've read certain th- things that say that that's normal and then certain things that that's like r- related to a disruption in sleep 
sleep cycle? Is it normal to wake up in the middle of the night? I think it depends on why why you're waking up. Um, everybody, uh, I, I guess I should say, is that n- nobody goes to sleep and sleeps a hundred percent of the time across the time that they're once they fall asleep until once they're full officially awake. And a typical sleep efficiency might be eighty five percent of the time you're actually asleep. So that means in that time in bed, they're probably is, you know, across the night, there might be something like 15, 20, 30, 40 minutes uh, that you are awake. Um, you, you, there, a lot of the time you're actually awake and you don't realize it. There, if you're ever awake for, we're, con- we're waking up probably 11 times an hour, which, which sounds terrible, but they're only for these 10 second or 10 second epochs or, or shorter than that periods of time. And those little tiny wake-ups, these little micro-arousals, you cannot remember. So you'll only remember if you're really up for a few minutes, you've shifted around in bed, and you haven't fallen back to sleep. If you're not able to get back to sleep in uh, five or ten minutes, that probably is an issue. If you're able to, if you are able to get back in five or ten minutes, that's just part of a normal one of these wake ups in the nighttime, um, and and not a, not an issue. The waking up for longer periods of time, you really just have to think about why did I wake up? Did I wake up because I needed to get up to go to the bathroom? Did I wake up because there actually is a garbage truck beho- behind my <laughs> my apartment building picking up trash at four o'clock in the morning, which happens because a lot of the world isn't sleeping uh, when we are. So so I don't know if you'll have an answer for this, but what about for people when you wake up and then you're sort of you know your mind starts whirring and then all of a sudden, you know, you're sort of like thinking about things, thinking about your day, anxious about things, right? And you can't get back to sleep. Do you have any thoughts on sort of ways to handle that? Everyone is going to have times that there is, is that something comes up and they're thinking, how in the world will I ever, you know, get my my kid into college? How am I going to pay for this? And, you know, what am I going to do? I have this report due. I just don't like the presentation, et cetera. There will be things that, that keep you up. And um, and there, so everyone will have a few <laughs> sleepless nights. It's It's really key if it happens on a regular basis to sort of think about these things before you go to bed. Some of us live such busy lives that we're running around, flying around, getting things done, putting out fires left and right, then suddenly you jump into bed and it's the first time you actually can think. And so, of course, everything that needs to be thought about gets thought about there and that's where all the stress comes out. So it can be for people who who have this happening on a regular basis or more than they want it to (laughs) can actually just set aside a, a, a time like a just to sit down in the evening and write down in a book uh, what things are concerns, what are things that they can do something about right then. Can they make themselves a note? Can they plan a meeting? Can they go talk to somebody at the bank? Can What's something that you can do? And what are the things that are beyond your control? And so that you know before you go to bed, there's nothing that you can do once you're in bed about any of those issues and sort of sorting that out when you're able to think about it and calmly write down, okay, I have control over this. I don't have control of that sometimes makes a difference for people. And absolutely having some sort of a, uh, a worry time. If it, ha- if it still happens, we always suggest the, the last thing you want to do is to start getting stressed out about looking at your bed and thinking, I hope this isn't going to be one of those nights I have 
you know, can't get any sleep. That causes what we call learned insomnia or psychophysiological insomnia. And that's the last thing that, that, that we want to see because then you're actually opening up the bedroom door and you're already building up adrenaline thinking about, this isn't going to be a good night's sleep. I know it's not going to be a good night's sleep and I have so much stuff to get done tomorrow. That really is a self-fulfilling cycle that really is going to keep you up. And then you are absolutely going to have terrible sleep. So we always recommend if it's happening on a regular basis and you can't get right back to sleep, don't worry about it. Go into the other room and say, okay, this is my time. I can read this wonderful book I've been dying to read, this magazine article I've been dying to read, um, listen to this um, program, etc. And Use that time in a happy, joyful way in a different room. And then when you feel like, oh, God, I'm so tired, let me get back to bed, then you're going to come back to the bed going, oh, I can't wait to get into the bed. We always want you to feel like, oh, I can't wait to get into the bed, that the bed is like <laughs> the wonderful, restful place it is. That would be the the, the, the way to sort of channel or, to, or take yourself through that. Mm. Yeah, I like this idea of sort of almost like a mental cool down routine before you go to bed in the same way that you wouldn't exercise right before bed. You don't want to be sort of overly mentally exercised. Exactly. You want to kind of... Right, right. Uh, yeah, maybe. Right. What can you actually do something about? And then you can go to bed with more assurance that you'll survive tomorrow. <laughs> Curiously, in the time that has elapsed between when I conducted this interview and when I published it, I no longer wake up at 4 a.m. every night. Something that I had probably done for almost a decade. There are two changes that I made that seem significant. The most important one was to stop drinking. I won't go into all the scientific details, but suffice to say that drinking alcohol close to your bedtime wreaks havoc on the natural rhythms of your sleep cycle. The second was to remove my phone from the bedroom. I bought a little bedside clock made by Braun so that I could wake up without relying on my phone. And I've never looked back. By vanquishing your phone, you remove all access to anxiety-inducing activities like checking email, social media, and the news, which tend to get your energy all jacked up at just the moment when you're trying to slow down. Now, these changes may not resonate with you, and that's fine. My point is that small tweaks can have large impact, especially when it comes to sleep. Whether it's journaling a little bit before bed to cool down, reading a book that truly transports you, or just deciding not to look at social media after 10 p.m. Think about small steps that you can take to prepare yourself for sleep and to make sure that you get enough of it. As Sigrid said, the question to ask is not, how much sleep do I need to survive? But rather, how much sleep do I need to thrive? Before I wrap up, a few notes on some big changes coming up for Hurry Slowly. Starting next week, I'll be introducing a new mini-episode format to the show. These will be short 5-10 to minute episodes that will take a few different forms. It could be a brief meditation from yours truly, or a small mini-interview focused on one actionable idea, or a supercut based on a bunch of different guests' answers to a single question like, what's the best decision you ever made? The way the new release schedule will work is that there will be two weeks in a row of the full-length interviews you've come to know, and then every third week, I'll publish a mini-episode instead of a full-length one. So basically, two weeks of long episodes, and then a short episode every third week. Why am I doing this, you might be wondering? Well, number one, making these episodes is actually a ton of work. It's hard to try and sound deep on a weekly basis. But the other reason is because I know I'm asking a lot of you as well. 
Most of these interviews demand close attention, and I know that's a precious commodity these days. So the mini-episodes will be a sort of light intermission for you and me both. Okay, that's it on Hurry Slowly Updates. Now it's time for your final moment of zen. Do you get enough sleep? I do now. I really do. And <laughs> my whole family will uh, attest to that because I really, I absolutely feel that I function better. And a lot of what I'm doing is, is this business, it's um, creative in the sense that I'm thinking about how to design studies to figure out, you know, how are neurons getting injured? What's the cause of that? That's still this problem solving in the front part of the brain that really does need a lot of sleep. And I know that I can't do a good job at that if I'm, if I'm not uh, well rested. So I'm, I probably um, will have one night a week if it's a, a weekend or um, late playing sports or something that I'm not behaving. But in general, I try to, I try to fit in that eight and a half hours of sleep would be probably my uh, average. Yeah. This show was produced by Matt Susich, who never sleeps on the job. Our theme music, Calm Revelation, which sounds, I think, a little bit like a lullaby, was created by Devin Craig Johnson. If this show regularly keeps you awake while listening, and maybe even impacts your life in a positive way, we would love it if you left us a review on iTunes. Every new rating helps us look even more legit so that we can attract new listeners. Thanks again for tuning in, and remember to take your time.